Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for allowing us to to gather together to study your word and continue our worship of you. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for all of those who are serving, Lord, from the sound booth to the worship team, security team, all of the support staff, Father, those who prepare the snacks and the coffee and those who are teaching, of course. Father, we're just so blessed, and we pray your blessings upon each and every one of your servants. We pray for understanding and application of your word tonight by the power of your spirit, Lord. We don't want to operate in our flesh. And so through this study, we pray that you will encourage us and equip us, convict us, Lord, if necessary. But we pray that you will be glorified. And I do pray for the gift of teaching in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So we are in Mark uh, chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 42. And the title of tonight's lesson is Pressed. Pressed. So now in this study, we're actually going to continue our lesson of the events that took place during what we call Passion Week, which is also known as Holy Week. And so Holy Week is the time from Palm Sunday through Resurrection Sunday. And it speaks of both the strong emotion and the suffering of Jesus Christ. And so last week we left off where Jesus was eating the Passover meal with his disciples or followers. And he had just let them know that one of them is going to betray him. And so with that in mind, we take a look at Mark 14, verse 22. And it says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat. This is my body. And Luke 22 adds, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He took it after supper, of course, and. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them. He gave it to his disciples, and they all drank from that cup. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And Matthew 26, 28 adds, for the remission of sins. Now, although Mark doesn't report it in this gospel, It appears that Judas has already left the scene, and that's indicated in John chapter 13, verse 30, if you wanted to jot that down. Now, as we see here, after this Passover meal, Jesus would go on to institute what we know as the Lord's Supper, also called communion. Of course, as explained many times, the bread represents the body of Jesus, And the cup of wine represents Jesus's blood. And Jesus describes this cup of wine as my blood of 
the new covenant, my blood of the new covenant, as we see there in Mark 14, 24. And you may be wondering what a covenant is. Well, by definition, a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. And Jesus's blood would establish or confirm this new covenant, just like the blood of those animals confirmed the old covenant that God had made with the Israelites. Because as you may remember, after Moses read from the book of the covenant and the people agreed to be obedient to the Lord based on what they heard in that book of the covenant, Moses took the blood of animals and he sprinkled it upon the people. And this new covenant, by the way, was not man's idea. This new covenant was God's idea, not man's, but God's. And it was God's idea for good reason. And why is that? Because the first covenant, which we call the old covenant, which included the law, it was not faultless. In other words, the old covenant, the old agreement that he had with the Israelites, it had faults, was not faultless. As it says in Hebrews chapter eight, verse seven, you see this old covenant or that first covenant would need the obedience of the people. It needed the people's participation. It needed the people to be faithful in order for it to completely work. And so it was conditional. There were blessings and curses included in the old covenant, which, of course, the old covenant would include the law. But the new covenant, the covenant that Jesus would establish by the shedding of his blood, didn't depend on man. But it depends only on the faithfulness of God. It's unconditional. And it was based on what God had done. God reached out to man. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God took the first step in the new covenant. And like I said, Jesus shed his blood to confirm that agreement. You see, the old covenant is external. It dealt with the outside. It dealt with rituals, whereas the new covenant is more internal. The scripture says that God's laws will be written in the mind and heart. So it's no longer from the outside in, but it's from the inside out. And so this new covenant, since it is internal, it involves giving people a new nature a new nature that comes from God himself. Because all of us have what we, what we call a sin nature, and that sin nature actually comes from Adam, the first man. And we can't do anything about that. We just have that sin nature from Adam. But if we want that new nature, we have a choice. And it's called repenting and putting our faith in Christ and becoming born again. We become a born-again Christian or a born-again believer. And so this new nature from God changes us from the inside to the point where, where we'll be able to desire and then do those things that we once didn't desire to do and those things that we could not do. Because under this new covenant, besides that new nature, we also get the Holy Spirit, this permanent 
indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, of course, would be is the third person of the Trinity and he indwells us. So we have God in us through the Holy Spirit. But now as we think more about this first covenant or the old covenant, it did not bring people into an ideal relationship with God. For some people, they were just focused on the external. They were trying to obey the law in their flesh, the moral law, and then it had ceremonial laws under it, and then it would have the civil laws under it. So the moral law, by the way, is still good because thou shall not kill is still good for today. The only difference is, and it's talking about murder. That's what it's talking about. Thou shall not murder. Thou shall not steal is still good for today. So the moral law is still good. But Jesus says, or the scriptures tell us that if we love our neighbor, we fulfill the law. Because if we love our neighbor, then guess what? We won't steal from our neighbor. We won't commit adultery. We won't murder our neighbor. And so, yes, the moral law is still good. But then the ceremonial law. That's been fulfilled by Christ. So that's why we don't sacrifice to animals anymore or sacrifice to God animals anymore. At least that's what people did under Judaism. There's no need to sacrifice sheep and goats and oxen. There's no need for an earthly tabernacle or temple. There's no need for a human priest to stand between us and God. Because Jesus is our high priest and he's our eternal priest. He stands at the right hand of the father and it says that he makes intercession for us. He intercedes for us. He stands in the gap for us. And Jesus is the only one who can do that perfectly because he's fully God and fully man, perfect man and perfect God. And so he can do that perfectly. And again, I'm speaking of him being our eternal high priest. Now, under this old covenant, as I mentioned, that it didn't bring people into an ideal relationship with God, but the new covenant did. So under the new covenant, by the way, it, 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 it brings people into a relationship with God to where we know God personally through his son, Jesus Christ. And so people or Religion would teach that it's it's about us trying to work our way to heaven, trying to work our way into God's good graces. But that's religion. That's cults. That's what cults teach. That's what religions teach. But Christianity is God reaching down to man. And so, yes, we can have a personal relationship with God. And again, it's not about the external. It's not about facing this direction when we pray or going to this place in order to worship God or having the right animal to sacrifice to God. It's not about that in the new covenant. It's not what it's about. Now, under this old covenant, the sins, by the way, was just covered. The blood of animals just covered those sins and And the following year on the Day of Atonement, the the high priest was allowed to go into the room called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. And so that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. And he would 
take blood in there, the blood of animals in there that was sacrificed for himself and also for the people. And the sins will be covered. That's what will happen on the day of atonement. But the high priest could only go in that room just once a year. And so these animals, these, the, the blood that was shed from these animals, so to speak, they were pretty much IOUs. And they were pointing towards Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice who would shed his, his perfect blood. So those animal sacrifices being IOUs was fulfilled when, when Christ was sacrificed on that cross. And so he paid off those debts. He paid off the IOU, so to speak. He fulfilled the typology, the, the shadowy representations of what these sacrifices represented. He fulfilled it under that new covenant. And so in the New Testament, Jesus put away sins. Even John the Baptist recognized that when he saw Jesus coming, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who, didn't, who doesn't cover the sins, he said, takes away the sins of the world. He takes it away. Now, according to one source, it says, in terms of the theological argument of Hebrews, speaking of the book of Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews in the Bible, he says the new covenant is better That is better than the old covenant because what? It is final. It is permanent. And it is once for all. As well as being secured and mediated by Christ instead of by human priests and the sacrifices they perform. So the new covenant was ratified or confirmed, so to speak, by a better sacrifice by God himself in the form of a human Jesus Christ. So now speaking of this Lord's Supper, as we as we think about that blood of Jesus, that blood of the new covenant, and we just talked about what the new covenant is and why it's better than the old. Now in thinking about that Lord's Supper, the bread and the and the blood, as long as we partake of it, what we're doing is remembering his death. And we're proclaiming it. In fact, this is what it says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you announce, declare, or make known the Lord's death till he comes. That's why I often say that every time we partake of communion, it's like we're, we're preaching a sermon about the death of Jesus. It's a great reminder that our Lord died for us. But what did he die for? He died in our place. He took the penalty that we deserve for our sins, those sins that separates us from God the Father. The scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus said, hold up, uh, I don't want you to die. Let me take that death for you. And that's what he did. And every time we partake of the bread and cup, we are reminded of the fact that he died in our place. And I think that's a great reminder Because some people, some of us, we get caught up in the fact that we've committed these sins of the past and and they bother us. And no, it's never good to sin. And, And yes, we're sorry that we ever did those sins, but 
If we're in Christ, there is no condemnation, as it tells us in Romans chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So when we partake of that communion, it reminds us that our sins are paid for, that yes, we are forgiven, that yes, we are redeemed. He purchased us from the slave market of sin and he set us free. And whomever the son sets free, guess what? The scriptures say that we are free indeed. We cannot be more free than we already are in Christ Jesus. And this communion, this bread, and this cup that we partake of during the Lord's Supper is, is something that we'll continue to do until he comes. In verse 25 of Mark 14, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine. I'll no longer drink of this wine and until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so what is Jesus talking about in the kingdom of God? He's going to drink it new there. Well, many people believe that this will take place during the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom on earth. And so this marriage supper of the Lamb could possibly begin the millennial kingdom. Or it could take place during that millennial kingdom, which is a fancy way of saying his 1,000 year reign on this earth. Where we'll rule and reign with him. But then it says in verse 26, as we continue in our lessons, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I wonder what that would have been like to hear Jesus sing or to even sing with him. And what was he singing? What were he and the disciples singing? Many believe they were probably singing the hymns that were based on Psalms 115 through 118. But Jesus told them as they would go out to the Mount of Olives. He tells them in verse 27, all of you will be made to stumble. All of you will be made to fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike or I will kill the shepherd. And the sheep will be scattered. It's actually an Old Testament quote. It's a prophecy about the Messiah in Zechariah 13, 7. And so I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He said, but after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And so Jesus shares this bad news. He shares the truth of the matter. This bad news that he will be struck, he will be killed, and his followers are going to be scattered. Shares the bad news. Told them that they're going to desert him. Who wants to hear that? But guess what? It didn't stop at verse 27. It didn't stop at the news that he was going to die and they will be scattered and, or, or disperse and go their own way. It didn't just stop there. Because it continued in verse 28. And I hope they were listening because it says, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And I will just submit today that some of us are stuck in verse 27. Some of us are stuck in the bad news. Oh, we're going to 
suffer persecution or we're going through persecution or we're going through our trials and our tough times right now or things are go- aren't going to be peaches and cream for us. Some of us are stuck in that verse 27, not realizing that there is good news to follow. There is a verse 28 that follows. Oh, yes, we go through persecution and we, we suffer through trials on this earth, on this side of eternity. But there is eternity. There is heaven. There is a God who loves us. There is a God who saved us. There is a God who's going to keep his promises to us. And so we don't want to get caught up and get stuck in the verse 27, the bad news of verse 27 in our lives and miss out on all of the hope that are in the scriptures, the truth. And then it continues. If you want to turn to Luke 22 verses 31 to 33, and as you turn in there, I'll go ahead and read it. It says, and the Lord says, Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, Jesus says, strengthen your brethren. But Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Again, that's Luke 22 verses 31 through 33. Now, many Bible scholars have pointed out that the word you in Luke twenty-two thirty-one is actually plural. And if you study the Greek, you can you can see that. That the first you is plural. And so what's really going on there as we see verse 31 is that Jesus is telling Peter that Satan has asked for all of you. He has not just for you, Peter, but for all the disciples so he may sift you all like wheat. Now, this sifting process, if we understand the, the, the physical part of it, will help us to understand what Satan was trying to do to them. Because literally the sifting process helps remove the chaff. It, it helps remove that seed covering from the grain. It removes the little rocks and the unnecessary material from the wheat or the barley grain. And in this process, the sieve is shaken in order to separate the good from the bad. And this is a process that needs to happen. Speaking of the sifting process, it needs to happen before this grain is ground into meal. So that's the physical part of that's the literal part of it. And so if you picture what's going on spiritually or what Satan wanted to do to them spiritually, what Satan wanted to do to Peter and and to the rest of the disciples to shake them up. He wanted to remove instead the good. He wanted to shake up whatever faith, whatever encouragement, whatever hope that they had left. And I believe today Satan still wants to shake up some people. He he still wants to sift some people. Not to bring out the good out of them, but, but he wants to shake up the faith. He wants us to curse God. Just like he wanted Job to do in the Old Testament. And so this Satan, he's still trying to sift people, trying to shake them up. But now in verse 32, in Luke 22, when you see that word you, 
Now it's pertaining to Peter. Now it's more specific because now he's saying, but I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And he says, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So now it's specific, can't get that word out, in verse 32, to Peter. The Lord has specifically prayed for him. Peter, you're going to mess up, but, but guess what, brother? When you, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. See, the Lord prayed for him that his faith would not fail through that sifting that the enemy wants to do. But notice, I don't know if you caught this. It says that Satan has asked for you. So Satan couldn't do anything to them without getting permission. Oh, he had to ask. Just like he had to ask to touch Job. In verses 29 through 31, it says, Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, even if all are made to fall away and to leave you, Jesus, yet I will not be. I won't stumble. I'm not going to mess up. But Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, it says before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me. You're going to deny that you even know me. You're going to disown me three times. But Peter spoke more vehemently. He spoke more emphatically. He kept insisting, if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will not disown you. And all the disciples said, likewise. You know, we all, we all mean well. We all have no intentions of messing up. But we also must have the attitude of humility. We all must be humble in our thinking. And we all must depend on God's grace to help us and not try to stand in our own strength saying what we'll never do. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so, again, we need to have the attitude of humility, and we need to depend on God's grace to help us. God's grace is what we don't deserve. Oh, we need God's grace. We need his strength to help us in our time of need. And that's what Peter, that's what the disciples should have been dependent on, dependent on the Lord. By your grace, I won't do this. Not in my own strength. One Bible scholar says that God's mercy covers the things we should have done. And his grace empowers us to do what we should do, but do not have the power to do. And so we need to be careful as we read this study tonight, as we read this, and we know what Peter did, that he really did deny Jesus three times. We need to be careful of this attitude when we hear of people like Peter and when we hear hear of the failings of some of the disciples and when we hear of other Christians and perhaps Christian leaders who fall into sin. We need to check our attitude instead of saying, oh, I would never do that. Start looking down on that brother or sister. Check our attitude. Have the attitude of humility. But instead, when we see these things happen and, and the news stations, they're, they're happy to put this on blast. They, they're happy on 
these different internet sites to, to put those stories at the top of the list when Christian leaders fail. And so we have to have an attitude of humility. In fact, we should be praying for them and we, we, it should make us have a, a better understanding of how frail we are. That if we let our guard down, if we stop reading the word, if we stop fellowship, fellowshipping with the saints, we stop the Bible studies and we stop praying and things like that, that we too could fall. It should make us realize that we need to depend on the grace of God. Come boldly to that throne of grace. And then they came to a place in verse 32, which was named Gethsemane. And he, he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then Jesus said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. In other words, I am overwhelmed with grief, even to death. And so the rephrase that that statement, he's saying that I'm overcome with sorrow so much that it feels like I'm going to die. And he says, stay here and watch. In other words, stay awake or, or, or be alert. And so we see here in these scriptures that they went to the garden of Gethsemane. And at this time, this is this is Thursday night. If you're looking for a time frame. Now, this garden was near the foot of the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And the temple would be directly opposite it across the Kidron Valley. And so east of this garden, east of the Mount of Olives would be Jerusalem. And in this garden, this garden of Gethsemane, this is a place where Jesus would um, um, habitually go. This is a place where he would normally go when he visited Jerusalem. And so he was not a stranger to this place. As you notice, he took Peter, James, and John farther into the garden than the other other disciples. He told them to stay put. And so many people will refer to Peter, James, and John as the inner circle. And by the way, this is the same three that went with Jesus when he healed or brought back to life Jairus' daughter. This is the same three who went with him on that mount where he was transfigured. And so we would refer to him and them as the inner circle. So Jesus took those three with him. He went a little farther in verse 35 and he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You see, Jesus was going to the cross. He was about to take the penalty of sins for all humans. He was going to take the full brunt of it upon himself. He was about to face the cup of the wrath of God, the wrath of the Father. And so, yes, coming up for Jesus was suffering. Abuse was coming up. The cross was coming up. Even separation from the Father. Oh, remember, Jesus would cry out on the cross, and we're going to see this soon. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Oh, he would cry that on the cross. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I do want to make this note and we'll get into it more, Lord willing, later on. That separation wasn't from his divine nature because there cannot be a change in the divine nature. God does not change. And so the separation was from his humanity at that point. He didn't sense the father with him. But Jesus Face that separation so that we would never have to. Now, since all things are possible for God, it would have been nothing for him to remove that cup, that cup of his wrath from Jesus. But we all know the story. God, the father did not take the cup from him. Jesus drank it all. It was poured out upon him on the cross. And so this answers our questions once and for all about whether or not There's another way to be saved because Jesus was asking if there's another way for mankind to be saved, remove this cup from me. And so that answers the question. It wasn't removed. So there is no other way to salvation. There is no other way for man's sins to be forgiven. So because we see that in the scriptures, we know that to be true. I say shame on anyone who would say that there is another way to heaven. Shame on anyone who says that there is another way for man to have a relationship with God the Father. There is no way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And because that cup of God's wrath was not removed, but he drank it all, every bit of it. Shame on anyone who would suggest that you can get to heaven any other way. But in these statements here, Jesus was okay with surrendering to the will of God the Father. Now what stands out to me and I find interesting, and and maybe this is a side note to the study. What I find interesting is that the first Adam disobeyed the will of God in a garden, in the Garden of Eden. But the last Adam... That's Jesus Christ. He surrendered to the will of God the Father. You know, one Bible scholar says that he drank the cup at Calvary, but he decided once and for all to drink it at Gethsemane. And so the struggle of the cross was won at the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 37, it says, then he came and found the disciples sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? He says, watch. In other words, be alert and pray, lest you enter into temptation. You know, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh, the body is weak. And so here we would learn something about prayer. See, prayer can prevent us from falling or giving in to sin. Because prayer focuses our attention on God. It helps us to rely on God. And God, as we pray to him, as we surrender to him in that prayer, he's, he's able to take us from that point to only where our spirit is willing. And he's able to give us strength to carry it out, to act it out. But we must depend on him in prayer. And so that's a question for us as well, or that's an admonition for us as well, I should say. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. 
let you fall into those enticements to sin. You know, again, in verse 39, a second time, Jesus went away and prayed and, and he spoke those same words. The same prayer. You know, and when he returned, returned back to the disciples, Peter, James and John, he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. Remember, this is late Thursday night. And and you know how it is when folks get through eating. You know, they just ate. You know, some of us have a hard time staying awake at lunchtime. And we're sitting at the computer, our heads just bobbing and everything. You know how it is. So they're, 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 they're sleepy. And so I'm sure their spirit is willing. Their flesh is weak. And they didn't know what to say to him when he came back. And in Matthew 26, verse 44, it says, So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will, Father. In Mark 14, 41, he came to the disciples the third time, to Peter, James, and John. Are you still sleeping and resting? Then he says, it is enough. Or in other words, enough of that, as some translations would say. It says, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer, that is Judas, Judas Iscariot, he's at hand. He is near. Now, Gethsemane, because this is where this is taking place, this Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it's actually an Aramaic word, and it means olive press. Or it means oil press, olive press or oil press. You know, olive oil in biblical times was used in many ways. It, it was used as fuel for lamps. It was used to anoint the head and body of people at feasts. It was used, as you, as you would even see in James chapter 5, to anoint the sick and pray for them. But now in order to get the oil from these olives, the olives had to be pressed. The olives, in other words, had to be crushed. And in this garden of Gethsemane, remember Gethsemane meaning olive press or oil press. In this garden, we see our Savior being pressed. We see our Savior being crushed. He was being crushed like those olives were being pressed for their oil. And he was pressed or crushed so much that Bible scholars believe that he was suffering from a condition in which the tiny blood vessels in the sweat glands would rupture under great emotional stress and duress, and it will produce a mixture of sweat and blood. So that's what many Bible scholars believe was going on in Luke twenty-two forty-four, because it says, in being in agony or being in severe mental struggles and emotions, it says he prayed more earnestly, and then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Oh, yes, we see our Savior being crushed, in the oil press, in the olive press. Oh, yes, he was being pressed, but I have to ask tonight, are you having your own Gethsemane? Or are you going through your own pressing tonight? 
Do you feel like you're being crushed by the pressures of life, by the pressures you're facing in this world tonight? Maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a marital issue. Or maybe it's an issue, an issue you're having with your children. But right now you feel that you're crushed. You're being pressed. You are having your personal Gethsemane moment. Or if not, you may experience your own Gethsemane. You may experience your time of being pressed. And so I find it important tonight that we do go over some points that we learn from Jesus on what to do when we're feeling that pressure or when we're being pressed or crushed. What to do, how to respond when we're having a Gethsemane moment. Well, the first thing we need to do as we learn from Jesus is, is to pray. Oh, yes, we see that Jesus prayed in his time of distress. In fact, if you remember in, in Luke twenty two forty four, it says that Jesus prayed more earnestly or fervently as he was in agony. So as the agony turned up, his prayers turned up. Oh, he didn't stop praying when, the, when he began to feel more pressed or he prayed even more. Another thing we can do, and we learn this from Jesus in times of feeling pressed in our times of Gethsemane. We learn that it's okay to ask brothers or sisters to join us. Watch with me. It's okay to, to take some saints or it's okay to go ahead and send out that prayer request on that form on Calvary Chapel Queen Creek website. It's okay to fill out that form and to send an email, say, hey, can you send this out to the prayer team? It's okay to text a brother or sister in Christ. Can you watch with me? Can you pray with me? I'm, I'm being pressed right now. I'm having a Gethsemane moment. I'm going through some trials and I don't see an end in sight. I need somebody to accompany me as I pray. So it's okay to have that inner group with you to watch, to pray with you, just like Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. See, 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says that if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. You see, we are a body. We're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. We're one body. And so when the finger in the body of Christ is hurting, we all hurt. We all suffer with it. Or when the toe in the body of Christ is sore, we're all sore and are suffering with that toe in the body of Christ. And so it's okay to call on the prayers of the brothers and sisters and to have that inner group, so to speak, and ask them to pray with you. Because when, when all the saints are doing well, when one saint is doing well, we're all doing well. When another is doing better, we're all doing better because we're a body. And so even our pastors and church leaders need prayer. Need to have those brothers and sisters to join in because church leaders, pastors, people who are on the front lines holding up that bloodstained banner, preaching the gospel, standing upon the word of God, preaching the truth. Oh, they'll suffer attacks. You're going to suffer attacks. You're going to be called names that you wouldn't call your worst enemy. And so, yes, we need to 
have those brothers and sisters in Christ to join in with us, to watch with us. But something else we can do, and we learn this from Christ as well, and that's to align our heart with the will of God. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Oh, no, I don't understand it. The thought of it doesn't even sound good, God. But you know what? I'm going to surrender to your will. You know, I like what Jesus said when he told his disciples early on in the book of John. He he said, my food is to do the will of the Father. In other words, he was saying that what satisfies me most is doing the will of my heavenly Father. Do we have that type of attitude? But something else we learn from Christ in our moment of Gethsemane is to remember that we are not alone. Or maybe that brother or sister in Christ, they're falling asleep and they're not as alert as we want them to be. Just like these disciples were, even this inner group, this inner inner circle, so to speak, they were not alert as Jesus wanted them to be. But Jesus was not alone. He was praying to God the Father. You know, Jesus even said this in John 16, 32. He says, indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own. You're going to go your own way and you're going to leave me alone. But he says, and yet I am not alone because the father is with me. And so in that moment when you feel like everybody else has scattered the people you normally could depend on for prayer or for help, they're gone. And and it seems like they probably even changed their phone number because they're tired of hearing from you. They're tired of hearing about your situation. Yet and still, you are not alone. God is with you. But guess what? He may even send his angels to help you, just like he did with Jesus. Luke twenty-two forty-three says that an angel appeared to him from heaven in this garden of Gethsemane, in this oil press, so to speak, or this olive press. In the time where Jesus was being crushed, crushed emotionally, an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. God sends his angels to help us as well. Hebrews chapter one, those of us who will inherit eternal life, it says that they are ministering spirits. They help us. And so, no, we are not alone. We have to remember that. But now when you are pressed, understand this, that the enemy wants to see you destroyed. The enemy wants to shake every bit of hope and faith that is left in you. He wants to shake it out. He wants to destroy you. But, but in that moment of our Gethsemanes and that moment when we're being pressed and crushed, God, on the other hand, wants good to come out of it. You know, just like out of those olives, out of olives, that, that good oil that has many good uses come out of it. And so God would want the good to come out of our pressing. Oh, that's God's desire. And we see this in Jesus because in Jesus' time of being pressed, in his time of going to the cross, what came out of that? What oil, so to speak, came out of that? The forgiveness of sin and the fact that you have a relationship now, if you're saved with the Father, the, the, the God of the universe, you have a relationship with him. Oh, you'll only die once and you'll live forevermore but a person who never repents the person who rejects christ they're going to die twice they're going to die physically and then they're going to die spiritually they're going to experience an eternal separation from god the father 
in a place called hell, in that lake of fire. And so some good came out of Jesus' pressing. Forgiveness. Relationship with the Father. Heaven, as the worship team comes to the stage. But now out of our times of pressing, what oil, what good, so to speak, can come out of our situation? Well, maybe God is showing us how far we've come. Oh, when we were pressed in the past, maybe we used to cuss and fuss and fight and slap folks. But now in our time of pressing, we pray. We continue to trust in God. We continue to read and study the scriptures. We continue to fellowship with the saints. So, so maybe our times of pressing, our Gethsemane is showing us how far we've come. Or maybe God is using it to show us how far we still need to go. Or could it be that God is using our Gethsemane, our time of pressing, our time of being crushed? Could he be using it to strengthen our faith? And I know he's using it to build perseverance. And perseverance is that ability to withstand hardship calmly and without complaint. Maybe he's using it to build that perseverance. And so we rejoice The scripture says in those times of tribulation, we rejoice in those times of pressing, of being crushed, because we know that God has a plan. We know that some oil, so to speak, some good is going to come out of it, that God wants us to grow. God wants us to grow in patience, that God maybe wants to equip us to do something. Or maybe that time of pressing is for the good of others, just like with Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. Guess what? With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So maybe that time of pressing our Gethsemane is to be a blessing to someone else, just like Jesus' sacrifice and his time of pressing was good for us. But ultimately, ultimately God is using that good, that bad, and that ugly in our lives. To help us to be more like Jesus. It tells us in Romans 8.29. That God has predestined us. Those he foreknew. Those who he knew in advance. He predestined us. He, in other words, planned beforehand that we would what? Be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus And so in those times of pressing, rest assured that long term, his goal is to use, use it to conform us to the image of Jesus. And with that said, this is a good time to go into our communion. 
And we see the elements here at the front and at the back. And what perfect timing God's had that, that, that this study will fall on a night that we will have communion. We usually do it on the Sunday after the, I'm sorry, on the Wednesday after the first Sunday. And so we talked about it in detail tonight. So you know what communion is about. It's for the believer. We remember his death. And we should approach it with the heart of gratitude. Because Jesus became sin for us. In other words, he became our sin offering. And he's the one who knew no sin. And it says that it's because it's going to help us to become the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean? That, that we're going to be declared righteous as, as if we've never sinned. Sin's forgiven. Right relationship with God now. And so, yes, we can remember that death. Remember that sacrifice. But also be grateful. But it's also a time of examination, self-examination. And we talked about that last week. Lord, is there anything in my life that I need to confess to you? We confess our sins to the Lord. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 I. So at this time, we want to bow our hearts and hands in prayer. Father, we thank you for the body and blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. And so we approach the Lord's Supper, we approach this table, Father, with reverence, gratitude, the heart of remembrance. And we ask you to reveal to us any sin in our lives that we haven't confessed to you. For those sins we're not aware of, we ask for forgiveness, Father, and And Lord, we pray that you'll bless the remainder of this night. And Lord, since I won't be coming back to the stage tonight, that you'll bless my brothers and sisters with traveling grace on their way back home. And we pray, Father, that you would use them in a mighty way this week. And may you open up doors of ministry and witnessing, Father, and Those who are being pressed right now and crushed, I pray, Father, that you remind them that you are with them, that you never leave them or forsake them. Help them, oh God, to be sensitive to your presence. Oh, maybe the enemy is accusing them. Maybe the enemy, Father, is trying to sift them as wheat. And Lord, I pray for them, Lord, that their faith would not fail. And we thank you for that great intercessor, Jesus Christ, our high priest who intercedes for us. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, 
would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.